You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Every 25 years, right? I drop in, right? Uh, what are you staring at? I'm, why are you standing there with your finger up your I hate everything about my life. I'm not progressing. Where am I going to be in, in, in 25 years? Dead? Wait, Huey? Are you on the lamb? Is that what's happening? Get back here, you son of a bitch! Define lamb. I didn't even know you had a daughter. I mean, I've been with a lot of women. They're not all careful. Who's their fault? On a scale from one to ten, how amazing is this? Do you know that your daughter has the makings of a truly brilliant cartoonist? Graphic novelist, oh. please. You're not supportive of my work. It's a penis that ejaculates carbon, carbon emissions. emissions. Yeah. Uh, oh! Do you know what you suffer from, my friend? Pussy whip envy. I mean, is that it? In order to play it safe, I have to end up marrying a woman who's old enough to be my wife? Adorable man. You're seeing a new chick, you know. So you want to sleep with me? She is true and fearless. The Super Bowl of truth. The kingdom of what is and what ain't. And never, no, never what should be. You've had nothing but contempt for all of us. Where do you get off? Huh? Bangkok is ruined. Ruined. Do they let you bring in drugs? Now we're still great in this act together. I mean, it's great. Okay, you know what? Why don't you just take this out? Now it's An ugly little wrinkle. <laughs> that was the card. You're my best friend's daughter. Uh, doesn't that make you feel awkward? No. She finds me in bed with the cleaning lady. Okay, fire the cleaning lady. You don't fire your husband's business. Everything your mama told you about sex is true. Take it down. Take, take just it stop, down. Huey. Just stop. Hey, folks. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me today is Dan Mervish, filmmaker and co-founder of the Slam Dance Film Festival. Dan has a new film out called Bernard and Huey, which is playing theatrically at select theaters across the nation, as well as playing on streaming services such as iTunes, etc. So be sure to check it out and take a listen to this interview. Curious how you got involved or interested in filmmaking, and where did you grow up? Uh, like you, I'm from the Midwest, uh, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, grew up in Omaha. You know, I'm not one of these kids that like was like super into film. Although when I was 12, a group of my friends and I did a paper drive. We, we collected, uh, recycled papers and raised enough money to shoot a, um, a little, uh, sci-fi film called, uh, Beyond the, the Ray of Death. I think it was that like five minutes long where we basically blew up my friend Harold's train set. But um, that was the one foray I had into actual filmmaking at, at growing up. But Omaha didn't, you know, we had a couple sort of art screens that were, you know, the university had a screening series and I'd see a few interesting things. But it was really only in college. I went to school, uh, got my undergrad in um, in St. Louis, south in the Midwest. Um, at Washington University, which didn't have a film program at the time. But there was one class, one Super 8 class, uh, taught by a guy named Van McElvey. And I really loved that, really got into that. And then also took a political theory class that kind of dabbled a little bit into the film theory side. And I remember there was a, you know, we were studying the the Frankfurt School of the 1930s, this group of uh, pretentious German philosophers. And one of them, Theodore Adorno, uh, said, uh, in talking about film, he said, the laughter of an audience reminded him of some of the worst forms of bourgeois sadism. 
I thought, well, there's a guy who hasn't seen a good Marx Brothers movie. So that, for some reason, that led me into film. And, um, and I took some summer classes, um, at UCLA. I realized you could, like, during the summer, you could take, um, there was no distinction between the in-state and out-of-state tuition. So it's pretty cheap to come out to LA, take a couple cinematography classes. And, um, and I really loved it. I mean, UCLA smells like e- eucalyptus and opportunity, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a t- fantastic campus. It was like real, learning real 60 millimeter filmmaking with this great Czechoslovakian uh, uh, cinematographer who's our, our professor there. And, um, and that really kind of gave me the, the bug for it. And then, you know, went back to campus and I was very much involved with this. Uh, we did have a group on campus where we showed films. We had a film series that screened films every night. And, um, you know, I think these were my earliest days, uh, my earliest experiences as a programmer because we would, show like you know monday and tuesdays were classic you know nights and wednesdays and thursdays were foreign films and you know and the weekends we'd have b movies and you know and midnight movies and second run films and, and so i was involved with that and, and and because i was the one guy who knew how to use 60 millimeter camera uh i was in charge of shooting the coming you know the trailer that said coming soon and no smoking and and those were sort of my first real productions you know getting a bunch of people involved and and that was a lot of fun. But then I kind of put the filmmaking on hold a little bit. After college, I moved out to D.C. and uh, worked a little bit as a journalist. And then mainly for about a year and a half, I was a uh, speechwriter for Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa. And uh, But even doing that, we would shoot a lot of the his speeches, the, the recording studio hidden in the basement of the Capitol. And, uh, and so we re- record, you know, I mean, it was just very simple, you know, video uh set up down there but um but it sort of got me hanging out with the guys in the booth you know and and sort of kept my interest in filmmaking alive and then decided if you stay in dc too long uh by the time you hit 30 they make you a, a lawyer you know they just give you a law degree by osmosis and a, and a 3d suit so i thought well, not really, i don't know if i'm that guy so why don't i apply to film school and i did and the only film school i got into was usc and so i went there started making movies when you were doing that programming, I'm curious what your film education was at the time. Were you discovering these movies at the same time that you're programming programming them, or absolutely, yeah, yeah, it really was uh, kind of learning by doing, yeah. Because what would happen in the you know in the mid '80s, late '80s, uh, universities across the country would do had had similar screen series where you would get these uh, catalogs from I think New Yorker Films and Swank Films. And, you know, these 60 millimeter things. And so they would always have these descriptions like, oh, this Fellini film or, uh, Sales Safe, this, you know, 1963, you know, black and white film or, you know, The Man Who Fell to Earth or different things like that. And they would always have a little bit of a description about them too. And they all just sounded amazing, you know, and we had these little committees and we'd all get together and, and, uh, and talk about them. But, um, but yeah, I think there, there, finally, I think by senior year, there was one sort of history of film. A film history class uh, that cropped up on campus. I had to take that, but that was kind of late in the, in the game. But yeah, it was very much, you know, hey, this film's cool. And then, you know, four months later, we watch it, you know, on the big screen. And but yeah, this is before there were you could you couldn't just watch trailers online, you know, to see if you liked a film. So it was like, oh, you know, maybe one person on the committee is like, oh, I remember seeing that once. Or, or all of us would be like, oh, none of us have seen this, but it sounds really cool, you know. So we would just kind of take a chance and, and see what would happen. I'm 
very curious about one of your earliest filmmaking experiences, working on the magnum opus that would eventually become known as American Kickboxer 2. Right, yeah. So this this started uh, uh, an incredible film. Incredible is one word for it. Um, but yeah, my involvement with American Kickboxer 2 would start, uh, I had been at USC for one year, uh, my first year there, and, and during the... And, and during the summer, all the grad students and probably undergrads too, you know, most of them, we would try to get these jobs, uh, these internships, just like uh, doing script coverage, just reading scripts and writing synopses of them in, in kind of these air conditioned Hollywood offices, you know, for production companies, for studios and things like that. And I, and I had one of these lined up and I wasn't really looking forward to sitting in an air conditioned office. That's not why you moved to LA. So, um, but uh, but then as the semester was end, drawing to an end, I went to the bulletin board, the job listing bulletin board. Um, and I see a flyer that said, um, uh, interns needed for one week of feature filmmaking in L.A. Oh, that sounds good. And it said terrorist filmmaking. I thought, Ter- terrorist filmmaking? I've never heard of that. I've heard of guerrilla filmmaking. But I wonder what terrorist filmmaking is. And so I called them the number on the sheet of paper and it was this guy with this thick Hungarian accent said, hello and I said yeah hi what is this terrorist filmmaking he said oh I, I meant to write gorilla filmmaking but my dictionary was wrong <laughs> and I thought oh well this this is intriguing you know so um, so yeah and it turned out he was this kind of nutty Hungarian director who had gone to Columbia Film School with the guy that was my screenwriting professor there was a little USB connection and they had uh, my professor had written this kickboxing movie that they, that was set in LA, but they were gonna, they had found a, a kick, a, um, a producer, a Hong Kong producer who, sh- who shoots all his films in the Philippines. And so they were gonna shoot the exteriors for one week in LA and then go to the Philippines and shoot the rest of the movie. And so I, I came on board and, you know, it was great because in the first couple of days, it's, sort of pre-production and production management. At one point, I picked up the Hong Kong producer at the airport, and he uh, he opens up his briefcase and filled with $300,000 in cash. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what's that? And he goes, it's the budget. What else? You know? And, uh, yeah. And so this, you know, and this was at a time when the, when the, um, when the triads were really running the film business in, uh, in Hong Kong, it was a pretty dangerous time. But our, but this guy, this guy, David Hong, he was, he was definitely afraid of the triads. That's why he shot all his movies in the Philippines. Uh, but anyway, but you know, and then we started shooting and, you know, and I was a camera assistant for a couple of days and different things like that. And, and finally, by the third day, the producer says, Oh, Dan, you seem to be the only one who knows what's going on around here. Do you, do you want to come with us to the Philippines and we'll make you a second assistant director? And, and uh, dialogue coach and, and ultimately a few other things, um, you know, we'll pay you, you know, $400 a week, which, which was much sounded much better already than, than working in an air conditioned office for free all summer. Um, so I asked the one question and he said, Oh, we'll fly you there. And I asked the one question that any film student in that situation should ask, which is, is there a return ticket? And, and there was thankfully. So I said, sure, I'll go, I'll go to the Philippines. So I went to the Philippines for five weeks and, and, uh, yeah, just worked on this, this really nutty movie where nobody spoke the same language. The director would yell Hungarian to the crew who spoke Tagalog. And I, I kind of translated broken English for everyone. And, um, but it, you know, you know, there's an old adage in filmmaking that you learn more from 
working on a bad movie than you do from working on a good movie. And, and I sure learned a lot on this one. So, uh, and, and at the end, the producer said, Dan, do you want to come back to LA? And I said, yes. Uh, and, and be the post supervisor. I said, sure. Yeah. What's a post supervisor? So, well, you, you need to find us an edit room. I said, okay. So I went back to LA and actually found this porn company in, in LA in Hollywood that, that had an extra, uh, editing suite. And, and I remember that, and they were very nice people. And, and I remember the name of the company was called Miracle Films. And their motto was, if it's a good film, it's a miracle. And, um, uh, and yeah, and then I became a, an assistant editor as well. And, and so I really, I learned, so I came back to SC in the fall and, you know, all my friends, none of them had tans, you know, because uh, they'd been reading scripts all summer, but I came back and, and I had learned how to make a movie from beginning to end, you know, from script to, uh, to, to completion. Uh, and so that really gave me the confidence to be able to then say, you know, look for my thesis film. Why don't I do a feature? All, all these people were doing shorts at the time and, you know, and they weren't all good or sometimes the, they'd be great for the cinematographer student, you know, he, he'd have a great reel. But, um, but even the good ones, you know, that people would go to meetings and, and you know, the Hollywood agents and producers would say, well, that's, Great, good. Now let us know when you've done a feature, you know. And it's like, oh, what? I just spent a hundred thousand dollars on short. So I thought, why not cut to the chase and just make a feature? And this was, you know, the early '90s, and and uh, you know, uh, Robert Rodriguez and Richard Linklater were making these, you know, great indie films uh, in Texas, and and I say in Austin. And I thought, well, if they can do that in Austin and get local resources, you know, why don't I go back to Nebraska, go back to Omaha, where I'm from, and 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 shoot my first film there and just get a local cast and local crew and 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 then put on a show and so i wrote a script uh you know with this great location called carhenge which is uh in western nebraska the old american car stuck in the ground in the exact shape of stonehenge and no one had ever shot there and and, and started the movie in omaha on the other side of the state and i and i knew a bunch of actors in omaha and then said to the film commission, oh, do you have a local producer that I should work with? And because no one had ever shot, at that point, no one had ever shot an indie uh, feature in Omaha, but there had been other productions there. And, and they said, oh, yeah, well, there's this guy, Dana, and he, you know, his day job is pouring cement on construction sites, but he kind of wants to get into doing um, features. He does a lot of commercials. And I said, uh, oh, okay. And they said, oh, and by the way, his grandfather's Robert Altman. And I said, he's hired. You know, and uh, that was uh, started working with Dane Altman then, and we're, we're still partners partners to this day. So, um, so yeah, so that was, uh, and then we made Omaha the movie. That was my, and it was a feature, but it counted as my thesis. And we shot it on thirty five millimeter. Panavision gave us free cameras, and Paramount gave us a free edit suite to cut on. And uh, and there were a few interesting people that worked on the film uh, that have since gone on to do. Okay. Uh, you know, Ryan Johnson was a PA on the film for one day. He made that Star Wars movie. What was that? that Last Jedi, I think. Uh, he's done, Ryan's done okay. And, uh, our camera assistant that day was Steve Yedlin, who, who shot The Last Jedi. And, uh, you know, uh, Ben Nelson, who was the governor, then became senator. Our biggest investor was Chuck Hagel, who later became senator and then secretary of defense. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's got an interesting pedigree. And then, you know, and that kind of laid the groundwork actually for Alexander Payne to start shooting his films in Omaha too. Cause once we had kind of set up that there could be a local crew base and local cast base there, he was able to convince his producers on Citizen Roof to shoot, um, to shoot that film in Omaha. He, you know, Alex has done okay since too. 
How did Omaha the movie help create the Slam Dance Film Festival? We finished the film, and at the time, the way it would work is you would finish an independent film and then take it to something called the Independent Feature Film Market, uh, which has since evolved into IFP Week, which is still a thing in New York. Um, so people from around the country, you'd take your indie film to New York, and then hopefully the programmers from Sundance would show up, watch your film, as well as distributors. You would hope distributors watch it there. Uh, but you would hope the Sundance people would show up and 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 uh, invite you to um, uh, you know to Sundance because you know at the time it was, it was physically harder to submit films to festivals like you could send in a VHS tape but to get them to watch it on the big screen was a big deal. Anyway, so uh, we went to this thing, met a lot of other great filmmakers, which was fun. Uh, we had a great screening. I had a distributor tell me point blank, oh, we love the film and we want to pick it up for distribution. I said, terrific. And I said, oh, if it gets into Sundance, like, just very matter of factly. But that was really, you know, that was really the situation at the time. So if you got into Sundance, you get, get distribution, you get, uh, you know, you, uh, you would get an agent, you'd get a producer, you'd get laid, you'd have a life, you'd have a career. And, um, but if you didn't, you would get none of those things. So, what happened was uh, Sundance didn't take the film. And in fact, of the 95 completed films that showed that year at the IFSM, Sundance didn't take a single one. You know, and really what was going on was in the in the broader context in the mid-90s, which was in, uh, heading into January of 95, um, was that it was kind of the era of the Hollywoodization of independent film. You know, around that time, uh, Warner Brothers had just picked, uh, just acquired Fine Line. Fine Line became part of Warner Brothers. Uh, Disney had, had just brought in, uh, uh, the, uh, Merrimax. Merrimax had become part of Disney. Uh, uh, Fox was launching Fox Searchlight. And, you know, and so, so Sundance was kind of along for the ride. They, they picked up on this momentum and tried to ride that wave. And so they were showing more films by second time directors, established directors with bigger budgets, bigger name actors. And, and uh and that sort of thing. And they kinda of left behind this niche of the first time director. All of us that had been kind of inspired by that sort of first wave of, of Sundance filmmakers, the Soderbergs and and Link Letters and Rodriguez and those guys. You know, we got together with uh these other filmmakers and we you know, we had heard of a couple individual filmmakers the year before. Um specifically um uh, James Marandino had a film called The Upstairs Neighbor that didn't get into Sundance, and so he had done a little renegade screening. Also, a couple guys named Trey Parker and Matt Stone with their first film, their graduate film out of uh, or thesis film out of University of Colorado called Cannibal the Musical. Um, that hadn't gotten into Sundance, and so they had done their own little renegade screening. And we'd kind of, and they each individually had gotten a little bit of press and attention for those little renegade screenings. But we'd heard about them and, and thought, well, why don't we take that idea? And really just combine all of our efforts. And so in the end, we wound up with, with a dozen features and a dozen short films. You know, we came up with a name that would look good on a t-shirt. And, um, you know, we all kind of shared resources and, 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 uh, and expertise. And we, we put on a show and then that became Slam Dance. What were those early Slam Dances like? I mean, the one that I went to was, literally right down the street from Sundance. And I have to say it was a little bit more appealing than Sundance was. Oh, well, thanks. What, yeah. Do you remember which, which year that was or what was that at the arrow or I think it was at the arrow uh, in the screening room, though it was much bigger. It felt as homey as watching something in somebody's living room, which was a really nice feeling. I mean, 
it felt like you were there with all the right people watching stuff all with the right intentions. Oh, well, that's great. And that, you know, and that really is the spirit that we've, we've tried to kind of stick with, uh, through the years. But yeah, I mean, the first year we actually, we, one of us had a, um, Shane Kuhn, who's one of the other founders, he, he had a connection to the University of Utah, uh, which is in Salt Lake City. And, uh, and all of us looked at the map and we're like, oh, well, that's, that's just like an inch away from Park City. So why don't we just do our screenings there? And, and people from Park City will, you know, who are at Sundance, uh, will just come to our screens. And, and then of course we get there and it turns out it's like a 40 mile drive. And it's kind of, you know, who knew, right? Uh, and so within a day we realized, wait a minute, this is, this is not really going to work. <laughs> you know, we're not going to get anybody to come to our screenings. So then, um, Lisa Raven and Frank Hudak, who had a film called Low, and, 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 and I jumped on board. They, we, we rented a 60 millimeter projector. The university was great because they had 35 millimeter projectors. They had 60 millimeter projectors. They had these great screen rooms. But anyway, so we rented, three of us rented this 60 millimeter projector. We drove up the mountain in the middle of a, of a blizzard. And I, I remember the window was cracked open. I was sitting in the back of this, you know, rented Honda and, and with snow blowing my face. Um, because we had those screens sticking out the window. Uh, and we were able to rent a, a meeting room, um, at a, a hotel meeting room at the, the Prospector Hotel. Now this was at the time, it was the same hotel where Sundance had their biggest screening venue. Um, and, but like at 11 o'clock at night, the night clerk, he doesn't care about Sundance. He's like, Oh, you want to rent a screening, uh, a meeting room? Okay. So he gave us a little meeting room and it was literally 20 feet down the hall. Uh, from Sundance's biggest venue. And, um, and, you know, by this point, we'd had a fair bit of press. So people kind of knew who we were. They just didn't know where we were. So people showed up the next day and we scheduled all of our screenings for 15 minutes after the Sundance screenings. So their, uh, sold out line, you know, their, their rush line just came right into our screening venue and we started screening films there. And then, then a couple of days later, we found a guy that was showing short films at the Yarrow Hotel, which is kind of block. Uh, he said, Oh, is it too late to get into Slam Dance? We said, Well, yeah, it's a little late. You know, we have a program. He's like, Oh, that's too bad because I have two 35 millimeter projectors, uh, screening my short film at, uh, in Park City. We're like, You do? Well, congratulations. You're into, you're in Slam Dance. And we just took over his operation and started screening our films there. So it really was a bit of a homespun operation, you know, really right from the beginning. And, and we've, we've tried to keep it, you know, kind of small and intimate ever ever since and and you know and our our, our focus for uh competition films has always been first-time directors without distribution and without u.s distribution and and working on on low budgets you know whatever that is uh at any given moment but um and we've really kind of stuck with that and and i think because of that it's you know we've kind of Filmmakers don't have the same level of expectations like, oh, I'm going to be discovered by Harvey Weinstein, you know, and turned into the next big thing. It's like, you know, you know, something might happen to you, your career down the road. But, you know, while you're here at Slamdance, you know, let's all support each other, learn from each other, collaborate uh, and, and, you know, and then and, and launch those careers, you know, and that's really what happened. And we've had, you know, an amazing run of of alumni that have uh whose first films we've shown, including, you know, Ryan Johnson and we showed his first short and and then and then our programming is done by alumni too. So, you know, Ryan is a programmer and I think he helped program the Russo brothers first film. Then they became programmers and they helped program 
you know, Christopher Nolan's first film. And, you know, Chris met uh, Wally Feister at, uh, at Slamdance, and, and they went on to a great collaborative you know, career for years. Um, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, Lynn Shelton and Lena Dunham's first films and Jeremy Saunier and, and, uh, Sean Baker and the Safdie brothers and the Zellner brothers. And most of the brothers have been involved with finance. And, uh, um, you know, it's just been a great community because as I say, a lot of these people have stayed involved as, as alumni, as programmers. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great community of filmmakers that we've kind of nurtured over the years, and, and then we try to co-opt them, you know, too. So, changing gears a little bit, can you tell me who is Martin Eisenstadt? Martin Eisenstadt was a an advisor to the McCain campaign, the John McCain campaign in 2008, and he was also a pundit. Um, uh, he was a senior fellow at the Harding Institute. For freedom and democracy, I think Hank in Washington, named after the third worst president in U.S. history, but he previously was the second worst president in U.S. history. That, that ranking has changed a little bit, and um, you know, and, and uh, Eisenstadt was a was a very influential figure during the 2008 presidential campaign, and and uh, for example, he was the guy who claimed to have been the one who spread the rumor that Sarah Palin thought that Africa was a country instead of a continent. And, um, you know, there was only one problem with him, uh, which some people in the media eventually found out about after quoting him extensively, and that was that he didn't technically exist. So there was that problem with Marty uh, Eisenstadt, and he was, as it turned out, a complete creation of myself and my friend Eitan Gorlin, another Slamdance filmmaker. Um, we had... Uh, collaborated on a series of short films and a TV pitch about this guy. Just kind of accidentally, people thought he was real and started quoting him uh, during the during the whole campaign. And then it all kind of came to a head when MSNBC had breaking news. Marty Eisenstadt is the source of the Palin Africa story and uh, had pundits talking about it, which is exactly what we were satirizing in the first place. These kind of dial-up pundits who show up. And then two days later, we outed ourselves the New York Times, they wrote a very nice uh, half-page profile on us, and, and that got picked up by the AP, ran all over the world, and Washington Post, and we, we got on CNN, and the next day we got a book offer. We were like, what's a book? Never seen one of those before. And uh, and it was from Farrar Strauss-Gerot, which we'd never heard of, but it turned out they were a very prestigious publisher in New York. We thought they were a hoax. We thought they were one, you know, someone hoaxing us, but then they took us out for lunch, and they paid the bill, and we were like, well, they must be real then. And this was at a time in fall of 2008, uh, if you recall, when the economy, I mean, there was just been the election, but there was also the economy had just collapsed. And so this was a little side project that we were doing in my garage while I was trying to get my film Between Us made. Aton was trying to get his, his new feature made. And, um, and then when, you know, with the economy collapsing, there was no way to get an indie film independent film of any size made at, at that time. So when presented with the option, do you keep not getting paid to direct a movie or do you get paid to write a book? Your, your wife tells you to write a book. So we wrote a book called I Am Martin Eisenstadt, One Man's Wildly Inappropriate Adventures with the Last Republicans, and uh, which is essentially a memoir from this guy who doesn't exist. Um, and it's kind of the whole thing is a satire of, of the, the Washington punditocracy. And, uh, and we actually got, got great reviews on the book and, and went back to Washington, did a, did a fun, uh, you know, book tour there and were, you know, uh, uh, 
Joe Lockhart, Bill Clinton's press secretary through the party and passed for us. And all the real pundits were there and we were running into senators and congressmen's wives. It was a very strange time. And then came back to LA and, and pitched it as a TV show again. Uh, and actually Ashton Kutcher's company wanted to make it. They were really excited. And then they had a deal with CBS studios. They were excited. And then at the last second, we were all going to go pitch it to Showtime at the last second, the executive at Ashton Kutcher's company got fired or quit or something. And then the whole thing just poof, disappeared. And everyone, no one's returned. We're still waiting for people to return our phone calls from that. And so that was when I said, yeah, so much for TV. Let's, uh, why don't I go back to this play adaptation that I've been working on called Between Us, which is an adaptation of an off-Broadway play. And uh, so why don't I just go back to making another indie film? And so I did. And, uh, and then we did that one with uh, Julia Stiles and Tay Diggs and David Harbour and Melissa George. And yeah, that film had a, had a really nice life. Tell me, how did you meet Jules Pfeiffer? Between Us, the film that I was just talking about, that uh, tonally was, was very much of a drama. And um, mainly we thought it was going to be a dark comedy, but nobody laughed. So we just told everyone it was a drama. But um, but tonally, it was, it was very much influenced by Carnal Knowledge, the great Mike Nichols film from 1971 with Jack Nicholson, Mark Garfunkel, and Candace Bergen, and Margaret. And um, and so, you know, there's just been an influence on my cinematographer and me. And and I, while I was in post-production on the film, I remember thinking, oh, I w- uh, wonder what happened to the guy who wrote that. And that was, of course, Jules Pfeiffer. And, and I knew him. I mean, I knew of him a little bit. Uh, he had been a cartoonist for the Village Voice for 44 years. Actually, won a Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning for that. He'd, he'd won an Oscar for a short animated film in the 60s. He, he'd written Carnal Knowledge. He'd written Little Murders that Alan Harkin directed. He wrote he wrote Popeye that Robert Altman directed. Um, and I thought, oh, I wonder what happened to this guy. Um, and so I just googled him, found this interview. I think in Chicago sometimes. And it said, oh, he's in his 80s, he's living in the Hamptons, he's doing some teaching, he's still writing graphic novels now, he's writing plays still. Because uh, he was a two-time Obie winning and one-time Tony-nominated playwright, too. He was a very successful playwright. And um, anyway, I had this very nice interview with him, but in the very end of the article, it, it had a little throwaway line where it said, oh, and by the way, he had several unproduced screenplays. And I thought, well, this is a, you know, better than he got. This is a guy who's won a... Uh, Pulitzer and Oscar, two Obies and a Tony nomination. That's a, that's a Putin. You know, not too many people have a Putin, right? So I, I tracked him down and, uh, yeah, he got back to me right away and, and said, yeah, I think I've got some scripts, but, uh, you know, I've been in, I've been divorced a few times. Everything's in storage. I don't know where anything is, but, uh, let me look and I'll, I'll, I'll try me back in four months. Like, okay. So tried him back four months later. Yeah, I still don't know where anything is. Try me back another four months. And, and this went on for a year and a half. And, uh, and at one point, I, I even met his daughter, Hallie Pfeiffer, who very coincidentally had a film at Framdance uh, that she had uh, starred in and, and wrote and produced. Anyway, she didn't know where these, where these screenplays were. And finally, my friend Kevin DeNovis, uh, who's another Slamdance filmmaker, um, a film called uh, Surrender Dorothy that won our jury prize years ago. Kevin knew I was having this correspondence with Jules and said, oh, I, I, I think I remember reading one of his, his screenplays. I said, where? He said, well, it was in this magazine called Scenario Magazine that in the late 90s, the magazine that would publish mainly produced screenplays, but every now and again, unproduced screenplays. You know, they would have like, you know, the screenplay to Big or Indiana Jones or something like that. And uh, I said, well, Kevin, do you, do you still have your magazine? And she goes, oh, well, I just got divorced. Everything's in storage. I don't know where anything is. So 
I, uh, I finally tracked down the one library in America that still had copies of it, and it was the Academy Library, you know, the, the Oscar people, the library in L.A., which is not far from my house. I went there, read the magazine, and uh, and had a little inter- uh, had a little article explaining the genesis of the, of the script, uh, Bernard and Huey. And, you know, and, the, and the, the script was based on cartoon characters that went back to 1957 and Pfeiffer's uh, uh, Village Voice strip, and then, and then he kind of brought them back as, you know, they were originally like these two sort of college age characters, uh, you know, in the, in the East Village. And then he brought them back in the 80s as these two middle aged guys in a recurring six panel strip in the back of Playboy magazine for all the people that were reading Playboy for the cartoons. They, they were right there. And, um, and then based on that, he got hired by Showtime. They kept Showtime commissioned him to write a screenplay um, based on these characters. But the week he turned it in, they change ownership and they change their whole business plan to, you know, boxing or comedy or whatever it was. And, and so they never paid him for it. And then meanwhile, he had a producer, a guy named Michael Brandman at the time. Uh, well, he still called Michael Brandman. He, um, he and Jules tried to pitch it to, to Hollywood as a, you know, as a big budget, you know, feature film. Um, there wasn't really an appetite for independent film much at the time. So, uh, and they didn't have any luck with it. And so it just sat on the shelf. Um, anyway, so I called Jules and said, Oh, I just read Bernard and Huey. Oh, Bernard and Huey. Yes. That's the one. That's the one you should, you know, we've been looking for. And, um, he said, but I seem to remember my assistant sent them in a bridge version. What you read may not have been the final version of the script. I said, well, that's great. Let's call your old assistant. Maybe she has an old floppy disk of the, of the thing. Oh no, she's dead. Oh my gosh. That's horrible news. I'm sorry to hear that. I said, well, what about your agent? You had a big agent back then. Oh, no, he's dead, too. Said, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. So what about your lawyer? You had a big lawyer. No longer among the counted. He is dead. So um, so I said, wow, that's just bad luck. Um, but we, but together, we tracked down this guy, Michael Brandman, this producer of his, who, God bless him, was still alive, still married, still had his archive. And, and he found us a, a tight version of the, of the completed script. And that, which was great. And then, then actually a few months later, I realized that Jules had actually donated some of his archives to the Library of Congress and had a little bit forgotten about that. And, and we I sent a buddy of mine to DC. He went through the archives of the Library of Congress and found the original handwritten copy of the script with, you know, on yellow legal pads with crossouts and arrows and, uh, little doodles of the characters inside. And so that was kind of fun to get our hands on that. And then, you know, and then, and then we had to make sure we could get the rights to it. So we called Playboy and called Village Voice, called Showtime, all these people. And, um, and, you know, finally Pfeiffer is like, you know, he's 87 at this point. He's like, when are we making this thing, Mervish? Come on. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Well, now, now, now we just have to make the film. How hard can that be? So, so then we did. So between us was what, 2008, 2009? 2013. It was like five years ago. But yeah, by the time it came out, it was, 13. I think we shot it maybe in 2011. Yeah, because I had taken like basically two years to do the Eisenstadt book and and uh, the book tour and the TV pitches and all that. Um, and so it was this sort of like two year hiatus between when we thought we were going to make Between Us at a three million dollar budget to when we actually shot it. Uh, you know, for like sixty five thousand dollars when we started shooting. You know, something really small. So. Bernard and here he comes out in 2017. So that's a long stretch to try to track down all this stuff. I mean, just the legwork that you had to do to get the script sounds incredible. Yeah. 
yeah, it was it was a journey, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it took like like I said, like about a year and a half to find the script, and then another year to a year and a half. I mean, we had to, you know, Jules didn't have an agent or a lawyer or 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 an assistant, so we had to sort of find those things again for him to like, you know, sort out the contract all over again and 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 track everything down. So that it took a while just to get the the contractual stuff sorted out, and um, you know, and then once we did. And then, and, uh, yeah, and then once we did, then we did a Kickstarter campaign, uh, raised a little bit of money that way. Um, you know, it's, a, you don't, you shouldn't expect to raise your whole money, your whole budget that way. It's called Kickstarter and kick finisher, you know, and then, and then worked on casting and, and raising the rest of the financing through, through equity and just investors and, and then shooting it. You know, that process was not that long. You know, that was like 17 months from when we had the contract all signed and ready and, you know, ready to move forward to, to shooting was, was less than a year and a half. Uh, which, you know, in that respect, that doesn't sound that long, but, um, you know, but the whole time it was an enjoyable process for me too. I was getting to meet Pfeiffer and getting to know him and, and filming him a little bit too. And, and, you know, and he's just got such amazing stories about, you know, I mean, he was best friends with the uh, best friend. He was friends with the, with Stanley Kubrick, and Kubrick had asked him to write Strange Love, and he didn't like his take on Strange Love, so their buddy Terry Southern wrote it, and Fellini was a big fan of Pfeiffer's, and they they became friends. And of course, you had you know, Altman who had crazy stories about Altman, and and introducing Jack Nicholson to Warren Beatty at an at an Altman party on the set of um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, just you know, like fun stories like that that you just don't hear every day. So, yeah, so this whole process, even though it was a bit of a grind and a bit of a search, it was it was an enjoyable and exciting one for me. So, you know, there were a couple other little projects I was trying to do along the way. Oh, I wrote a book in that time, you know, uh, The Cheerful Versus Guide to Independent Filmmaking, um, which is out now on Focal Press and, and Rutledge, and I had that to fill my time. So it's not, you know... Uh, like I was doing nothing and I drive my kids to school. That keeps me pretty busy. How close to what was originally supposed to be on Showtime was Bernard and Huey to what we see today when we see it on Amazon Prime or iTunes or any any place else that digital films are available? Yes, or in theaters. It is still playing in a few theaters and will be playing in the next few weeks in, in Omaha and Lincoln and Baltimore. It's going to be playing and and um, in Mill Valley, it's screening. But, um, you know, when I first read that script, uh, uh, you know, in the magazine, um, and I first talked to, to Pfeiffer about it, I mean, I, I really loved it. And, and I thought the characters were these kind of evergreen characters that were, you know, timeless and timely, both, you know, both at the same time. Contemporary scenes of these two middle-aged guys were set, you know, in 1986. That was when he wrote it. Uh, and there were flashbacks to 1960. Uh, when these guys are kind of post-collegiate age characters. And I said to Jules, I said, well, look, I, I think it's all great material, but I said, I'm my kind of indie film budgets, you know, it's hard enough to, to do one period movie, much less two, two different periods. So I said, you know, do you mind if we move everything up 30 years? And, uh, so the contemporary scenes are contemporary, are contemporaneous stuff now. And then the flashbacks were to about, 1988 and he was totally fine with that and and, and we thought we were going to have to change a lot more of the script and and remarkably when 
went through it, there was really very little we had to change. I mean, I love the original Pfeiffer dialogue. I mean, that's why you have a Pfeiffer script. But even just the mechanics of the plot, uh, which are about these two two middle-aged guys who haven't seen each other in 25 years, they kind of reconnect. And one had been like this kind of alpha male, and the other was his never best friend. And they've kind of swap roles in a sense. And, and one starts dating the other guy's. Uh, 25-year-old daughter, uh, played in the movie by Mae Whitman, uh, who now she's an aspiring graphic novelist in, in the film. And, and uh, Jim Rash, Bernard, plays an editor at, at W.W. Norton, and, and, and she's trying to get a, a you know a publishing deal you know through him. So that's the one slight part of the plot that did change. In the original... She was an aspiring cartoonist, but her aspiration was to be in the back of the Village Voice, in the back of alternative comics. Because if you think about it, in 1986, that was kind of the height of cartooning. That's obviously it's what Pfeiffer was doing. It's where you know Matt Groening came from, and that, and that was kind of the the apex of cartooning. And so in the original script, that's what she wanted to do. And Bernard worked at the Village Voice in a different department, but he worked at the Village Voice. And so, um, and so I said, well, why don't we change to what Jules himself is now doing, which is at 89, he's a best-selling graphic novelist. He just actually his new graphic novel. I'm staring at it right now. My hands on it. The ghost script uh, just came out. Uh, it's just coming out this week, basically. Um, also from W.W. W. Norton for 20 somethings, you know, millennial. If you're a cartoonist, that is kind of the apex of, of, of that medium with his graphic noveling. So we just changed Mae Whitman's character, Zelda, who plays his, uh, Huey's daughter to, to wanting to be a graphic novelist. Um, what's interesting is that those, those subtle little changes actually meant that we had very little else to change in the script. And I think what's interesting is if someone had made this film, say, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I think there would have been a real temptation to to make that character a, uh, you know, a web designer or something digital. And and that would have necessitated a lot more changes just in the mechanics of the plot. And uh, And so oddly enough, by waiting 30 years, so many things in culture and society and language so cyclical that that I think it sort of works in a way that it might not, not have worked 10 or 15 years ago. So, yeah. Uh, but the other thing, too, is I think as a, as a direct, you know, when you're adapting someone else's material or, you know, a play or a book or in this case a, a screenplay, you need to find your own way into the material emotionally, especially on an indie film where you're not getting paid much. You know, you're not doing it for the paycheck. You know, if you're not emotionally connected to the material, your cast and your crew and your investors are all going to sense that and you're going to get discouraged there's so many roadblocks in independent film you're just going to walk away from it at some point so for me what was nice was by updating it 30 years i'm now about the same age as jules was when he wrote it i'm about the same age as the characters are you know the the flashbacks are now to when i was in my post-collegiate age years and in fact we even shot some of those scenes in my garage as Huey's apartment, uh, with all my old stuff, my posters and signs and records and everything. And so it's, you know, that was kind of my way into the material in a way that I think Jules certainly appreciated and he was totally fine with that. So, but then cinematographically, we wanted to kind of pay homage to the, um, you know, to the, the legacy of, of Pfeiffer and his original and carnal knowledge and, and, and his other films and, and material from that era. So we, you know, the DP, Todd Soma Devia, he and I, um, and Todd, by the way, had been Ryan Johnson and Steve Yedlin's roommate at USC you know, 30 years ago, had all these weird connections. You know, he and I decided to, even though the contemporary scenes are, are set now, 
we shot them in kind of a retro style with long takes and a true single camera anamorphic primo zoom lenses you know even though it was on an alexa body and have these like four or five minute takes and so there's this stylistic kind of homage to the time even though you know it's set now so and in the flashback scenes we shot on on film super 16 the chemistry between bernard and huey is so critical and i'm very curious how you came up with these two leads in independent film you uh you never are going to have the luxury of, of having some sort of platonic ideal of the perfect casting list to the, the, the perfect people that you have in mind. So because of that, you never want to have a list. And I certainly don't, you know, it, 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 it always is very much about schedule and availability and, and desire, finding actors that really want to do it. And that may not necessarily be the people that you want. Sometimes it is. And so because of that, we, we had a very open approach to casting. We went out to, to, you know, the agencies and management companies and said, well, well who do you think is best? And, and I've written a lot about, about how to do casting on these, um, these kinds of things. So we didn't really have any preconceived ideas about race or body type. They could be fat, skinny, didn't, didn't really matter. And then in the end, you know, uh, the agent suggested David Keckner. And and he'd been in a couple of slam dance films, and I knew a few directors that had worked with him. And I heard Adam Scott actually talk on a podcast about how great he was to work with on on Krampus. And you know, and and Keckner has this great body of work from you know Anchorman and the movies and 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 The Office is pretty broad. Uh, you know, sort of comedy background and, and, you know, and he got a start at Second City and he was on SNL for a season and, and UCB and all these things. But like a lot of comedic actors, he, you know, he also wants to do, you know, some more serious stuff. And he's been in other more serious indies like, um, you know, Thank You for Smoking and, and some other things like that. Um, but he was really excited to take on a role that while it was a comedy and it was certainly a take on, the kind of roles that he's done before and the kind of persona that he has, it definitely takes and gives it much more gravitas and, and, and some, you know, some more meat to the bones. And so he was excited about that. And, but also it just did fit with his schedule. He had just wrapped doing a recurring role on the Goldbergs and he was about to start, um, uh, superior donuts on TBS. And so he had a nice gap in his schedule and he's got five kids. He lives in LA. He's like, Oh, you're shooting in LA. Perfect. I can go home at night and see my family, you know? And, and that's, you know, that's a big part of casting for indie films because they're not doing it for the money. So it's like, okay, well, does it fit in with their, their lifestyle? Uh, and then Jim Rash was, it was a bit of an accident. I was, we hadn't found a Bernard and then, uh, and we're getting a little nervous about that. And I was still raising money and I had this big list of, production companies that I call every time I make a movie and called this one. And I said, Oh, can I talk to the assistant? I said, Oh, can I talk to your boss about this movie we're making Bernard and Huey? And the assistant says, Oh, I love Bernard and Huey. How, how have you read Bernard and Huey? That's crazy talk. I, I just called you right now. So no, 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 we're also a management company and we read the script and we've actually already pitched, uh, our client, Jim Rash to your casting director. I said, you did. She never told me that. So, you know, just never made it through to me. And I said, Oscar winning screenwriter that would look really good on a poster, you know, Jim Rash. I said, that's a great idea. So, and, and I went to meet with, I was getting ready to meet with Jim and I, and I texted, uh, Joe Russo, you know, who's another slam man, Columb, you know, and I knew Joe pretty well. And he was shooting, you know, Captain America or, you know, Infinity Wars, whatever, you know, Marvel. And, but he texted me back right away. He said, Oh, Jim Rash is terrific. You should totally cast him. 
And, uh, and I was like, well, that's all I need to hear, really. You know, so, but then Jim and I kind of hit it off and, you know, he'd won an Oscar for co-writing The Descendants with uh, Alexander Payne. And I knew Alexander from Omaha. And so we had that to talk about. And, and again, he had just come off of uh, playing Dean Pelton on Community, which is a very different part, you know, very kind of out there role. And, and so he had time in his schedule because he was getting ready to write a screenplay with his, his writing partner, Nat Saxon. But I think Nat was on a, was busy on a sitcom or something like that or on a show. So he, he couldn't write then that much. And, and, uh, and he just, he wanted to do a different part from, from community. And honestly, not too many people offered Jim Rash leading roles as a romantic lead. So he was like, yeah, I've been working out at the gym every day. This could be good for me. So, and he was just excited. And, you know, not for nothing, we got an Oscar winning screenwriter, you know, on board if we needed to find a new adjective or something. He was always around. So, and it was great. And these guys are both like master improvers. I mean, you know, Keckner has this great background. And then Rash has been a master improv teacher at, uh, at Groundlings in LA for 20 years. And so, um, so we did four days rehearsal with them and the young guys who played the, the young versions of them and the rest of the cast. And, um, you know, just standing around my kitchen where I am right now, pacing. And, you know, we just made all this, you know, food and, uh, had a great time just kind of getting the tone and the chemistry and the pacing of the film, you know, everybody on the same page. And, you know, by this point we had this great ensemble with Richard Kind and Nancy Travis and Sasha Alexander and Bellamy Young. And it was just, you know, really wonderful actors all around. And what was nice is in rehearsal, because a lot of times these actors aren't in the same scenes together, but during rehearsal, everybody can kind of come together and, and, and overlap and see, you know, Nancy Travis can see how Richard Kind is doing his scene. You can see how Sasha's doing her scene. And so everybody kind of gets on the same page. Like you're making, you're all making the same movie. And I think whenever you're directing an ensemble, that's, that's really key, you know, um, because you don't have a lot of time on set, you know, I, mean, I think we made the film in 14 days in LA and two days in New York, something like that. So, um, you know, just shooting one camera. So, you know, there's not a lot of time to play around on set. So, um, so you really, you almost make it in rehearsal. Well, it sounds like the shoot was an absolute breeze with absolutely no problems. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, it was fun. It was definitely, it was more fun than my previous films had been. Um, you know, it, you know, honestly, it's nice when you're making a comedy or when you're making a musical. And I've done those too. You know, it's fun on set. Like you finish a scene and when the, and if it works, the crew laughs, you know, and the rest of the cast laughs. I can tell when, it, when things are working. You know, yeah, there's always production challenges, you know, the location that falls through and the too hot or it's too cold and, and, you know, the location they they double the location fee once you're there and they screw you that way, you know, and things like that. And um, Mae Whitman had a cold during most of the time you were shooting, so she was sick. So it's like, oh my gosh, you know, but she was great. She just powered through it um, and she was terrific. And, and yeah, and it was really, you know, we had a really dedicated crew um, and, uh, you know, that hung together and, and, uh, and everyone worked really well together. There was no drama on set. Uh, with any of the actors or the crew, which is terrific. Uh, yeah, and everybody, you know, and everybody wanted to make this film, you know, for Jules. And, and, and a lot of the actors had these connections to him. You know, uh, Jim Rash had been in a Pfeiffer play in college. Actually, it was a play called Pfeiffer's People that has Bernard and Huey in, in, as characters in that. And Sasha Alexander had, had, she had been at USC and she had directed a, um, 
a short based on a sh- short story that Jules had written. Richard Kind is friends with uh, with Pfeiffer, so um, you know, so we all were making it, you know, kind of kind of for him and for ourselves, and and uh, and kind of doing it for the right reasons, and um, and so it was it was a pretty, uh, you know, so they, none of these shoots are effortless, but they um, but it was an enjoyable shoot, you know, and, and I think because of that. All of the actors and Pfeiffer and myself, obviously, but uh, you know, we, we stayed involved. You know, uh, you know, we played at 25 festivals in five continents, and and uh, you know, a lot of the actors came to the Q and A's, and and you know, and have continued to do press and interviews, you know, through the release of the film, and, and that doesn't always happen when you have this many actors. You know, to get them to show up and do press a year and a half after you shoot the film is. You know, when they all have busy schedules, it's not always so easy. So, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of a testament to, to to the fact that you know this was kind of a fun process for, and fun project for all of us. Well, you've seen the markets shift so much over the years. I mean, here you are having to come together with these other filmmakers back in '95 and create Slam Dance so that you actually have a venue to kick off your movie. And I'm curious now in 2017, 2018. What kind of venues are you able to to get, and what's kind of the landscape out there for you once you have Bernard and Huey in the can? I mean, you talked about the film festivals, but what's kind of like that world outside of the festivals? I actually think in 25 years, remarkably little has changed. I mean, 25 years ago at Sundance, like if you were at Sundance, and not just if you were at Sundance, but if you, if you were like the winning film there, or the couple winning films, you know, there was a little bit of a brass ring. And, and you could be the anointed indie filmmaker that year, but there were only like room for a couple of them. And I don't think that's changed much at all. You know, there are still the power brokers. I mean, the names may have changed a little bit, but still, if you go to Sundance and you're one of the, you know, and if you're one of the anointed few at Sundance, you can go on to, you know, to become this acclaimed hot young indie filmmaker of that, that year. And you get what, you know, what I call meaningful distribution. Um, and so I think, whereas now, you know, I, I heard like John Sloss put it, uh, you know, a big lawyer a couple of years ago. He said, you know, it used to be the definition of distribution was, you know, maybe 2% of indie films got distribution. Now 100% of film, indie films get distribution. It's just that the definition of distribution has changed. You know, any idiot can put their own film out on VOD or iTunes or Amazon if you want. But getting people to notice it is another matter entirely. And that's still, still back to your 2% of indie films are getting that, what I call the meaningful distribution. So, you know, I mean, we were, um, you know, in a position where I didn't want to, you know, I'm a big believer that you make a film, you show a film, you know, you don't wait six months. Oh, I think I'm going to try to get into Sundance and oh, I didn't get into Sundance. Maybe I'll get into South by. Oh, I didn't get into South by. Maybe I'll get into Tribeca. You know, and then meanwhile, a year has gone by and everyone, you know, and, and you've wasted a year just applying to three film festivals. And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm a big believer in the culture of film festivals, just like going to, you know, a big part of having, make, making a film is showing a film, is showing it to audiences and engaging with audiences and at Q and A's and introductions and panels and workshops and different things like that. And so we just hit the ground running, you know, we just, so we finish it. You know, on a Thursday and a Friday, I was on a plane to Germany premiering it at the Oldenburg Film Festival. And, you know, and, uh, a month later or three weeks later, while they were being threatened with nuclear annihilation, we showed the film in Guam at the Guam Film Festival. But we won a grand jury prize there because apparently no one wanted to go to Guam that week. I don't know why. 
you know, we just kept going to, you know, fun, exciting film festivals and interesting places and Barbados and Sao Paulo and Montreal and, you know, different places like that. And, and just finding an audience and, and getting reviews and, and, you know, and then ultimately getting distribution for the film. Um, and, the, you know, we found a, a pretty good distributor, you know, uh, Freestyle, which is part of Byron Allen's company, uh, Entertainment Studios, and they're good folks over there. And we got a 10-city theatrical release, played in 10, you know, in L.A., in New York, San Francisco, uh, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Miami, you know, for one week. But then they do a day-and-date release on, uh, on uh, VOD, iTunes, that kind of thing. Um, but then what's nice is they've been very cool about letting me then continue to book the film um, in places like uh, Anchorage and Omaha, Lincoln, Baltimore, uh, D.C. I think we have another screen coming up there. Uh, and I'm, I'm dovetailing it with uh, guest lectures that I'm giving another at universities this fall uh, in different places. Um, in Mill Valley, we're doing that. Um, so, uh, and they've been very, so even though the film is out already on VOD, yeah, anyone could watch it if they want on iTunes and please do, um, you know, it, they can still see it on the big screen because it is, you know, it is a big screen movie, you know, so in some of these places and Pfeiffer is actually coming with me. We're doing a Q and A together at the screening in Baltimore and a lot of, some of the cast and crew are going to be at the Omaha and Lincoln screenings and, and, um, and we're doing actually also a retrospective screening of Omaha, the movie in Omaha in, uh, on that same trip. So that'll be a lot of fun. But look, uh, in 1995, I ultimately self-distributed Omaha, the movie and played it in 33 cities uh, around the country on 35 millimeter film, you know, literally hustling, you know, a can of 40 pound can of film around. And we wound up in, with an 11 week run at Lemley's in LA uh, with me standing in front of the theater wearing sandwich board. Well, cut to 25 years later, 24 years later. And, uh, you know, a week ago or a month ago, I was in front of Lemley's Monica wearing a sandwich board again, um, promoting Bernard and Huey. Um, and, you know, it, it hasn't really changed. If you, if you're an independent filmmaker or any kind of media creator, of one sort or another, like, you, one way or the other, you got to strap on a sandwich board, you know, because no one's going to promote your film as well as you. You can have the best distributor in the world. Uh, you know, this week it may be A24. Last week it would have been the one, you know, whatever, whoever it is. But if you're not promoting it yourself, uh, just as much and just as hard as your distributor, um, you know, pe- people see that and they pay, you know, and they, and they see the passion that you've got for your own film. And, you know, I mean, my actors are like, well, you know, I'm not going to put on a sandwich board, but Jesus, Mervish is. That's crazy. You know, but okay, I guess I'll show up to do the Q&A, you know. And I think you still need to do that. And whether it's a uh, whether it's a physical sandwich board, as I like to do, or the digital version, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and book, whatever, you know, it's the same attitude of, Yes, this is my work and I'm proud of it and I want people, I want you, the audience, to come see it. And, you know, and I think filmmakers need to think of themselves almost as performers, as putting on a play. Like if you, yes, you can show a film on iTunes, but there's no, there's no feedback. You don't, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a film is like a tree in the forest. If nobody, if you don't know that anybody's not seeing it, how do you know that nobody didn't see it? You know, so, uh, so that's why I think festivals are so great because you can get a good audience and you can get, um, you know, you can get a Q and A. I mean, I'm still going to festivals. Uh, Bernard Huey is opening my film at the Woodfall Film Festival this weekend in, in Massachusetts. I'm heading out to that. 
And, and I love doing Q and A's and talking about these great stories. And because, uh, that, you know, that's part of the performance. It's where we are creating these, these, you know, pieces of entertainment. And, um, and part of entertainment is the, the feedback to hear an audience laugh or cry or shriek or, you know, whatever, whatever it is you've made. So, um, so yes, I'm a big believer in getting the film out there and don't wait around for Sundance to anoint you or, South by to anoint you, you know, just find another festival or start your own if you need to. Yeah, you've dropped a lot of names while we've been talking, talking about the Russo brothers, talking about Ryan Johnson, Christopher Nolan, all these guys. I have to say, when you said Byron Allen, I almost plotzed because I was just like, holy shit, Byron Allen from real people? I couldn't believe that you... Yeah, he's got this amazing company uh, called Entertainment Studios that, that then they bought out Freestyle, which was a standalone company for many years. But uh, yeah, look him up. I mean, it, he has very quietly, or not so quietly, amassed this uh, uh, this giant entertainment. He owns like a whole bunch of cable channels. He just bought the Weather Channel. Um, I'm surprised we didn't, I'm surprised he didn't have Jim Rash and, and Keckner, you know, doing the hurricane reports, you know, in the last week. That would have been great for us. But, uh, but yeah, Byron Allen has this amazing entertainment, um, entity now and, uh, has all these cable channels and everything. So go figure. Uh, but yeah, he, you know, just in the last couple of years, he's, they bought a couple of films out of Toronto last year. Uh, Chappaquiddick was their, probably their biggest release. Um, uh, as a, as a studio, but, um, but yeah, and then my little film. So go figure. But then, you know, they're, and they, and they're close to my house. So honestly, I, I'm a big believer in, in proximity. Like, uh, you know, oh wow, I can just drive to your office and pick up the posters or drop off a form or whatever. Cool. You're sold. Yeah. Uh, I pick you, you know, so I like that a lot about these guys. And they, you know, and they've been very nice to deal with and they've been, and they were very happy with the release. I mean, they were thrilled that, you know, Pfeiffer was able to come into New York and do serious exam interviews and that, uh, you know, Jim Rash was able to do, you know, get on radio shows and, and, and do interviews. And, then, you know, you know, and the film's gotten great reviews. It's, it's very fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, very, very fresh and uh, getting great reviews in the New York Times and stuff. So, and then it's still kind of continuing because Pfeiffer's got this, um, graphic novel coming out. And so, you know, so he's doing a bit of a, a tour and press junkets, um, just for the graphic novel. And, and so I'm working actually with the publicist at, at WW Norton. And of course he was surprised because WW Norton is in our movie, you know, and it's like, which is a little meta and self-reflective. But, um, so we're still, you know, that's why we're, we're kind of, you know, still out there with the film and promoting it and, and, uh, trying to spread the word about it. Um, yeah. I mean, just because you, you get a, a, a one week, um, release doesn't mean you should stop promoting your film after one week. You know, where's the fun in that? So. Dan, give me all the links. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you in the film? I try to keep up today on Bernard and Huey movie.com. Um, and then on Twitter, uh, it's Bernard and Huey at Bernard and Huey or the app Bernard and Huey movie. Uh, and on Facebook, similarly, um, I, I keep up I keep Twitter and Facebook up to date on those. Um, and then for myself, uh, again, just follow me on, on Twitter. I'm sure I'm saying horribly offensive things that are going to get me fired in 10 years, but, um, but yeah, I'm at Dan Mervish and then, and then on Facebook, I'm, I'm, don't try to friend me. I think I'm filled up to, with my, I've hit my 5,000 people. You can follow me there. And then my website is, is, uh, it's danmervish.com. 
and, and uh, you know, and then you can buy my book, the, you know, the cheerful subversive guide to independent filmmaking that's on there. I mean, you can get that on Amazon uh, and of course Bernard and Hugh, you can get on iTunes if you, if you want, or, or come see one of the screenings we have coming up. Uh, and then the Martin Eisenstadt book, that's still available. Uh, it's actually in its second printing. And, uh, I mean, and that's becoming more relevant every day, honestly. Uh, the whole Martin Eisenstadt thing, um, is w- remarkably prescient in, in, into the whole world of, of Trump. Um, Eisenstadt even had a, uh, had a, a Russian uh, girlfriend who he didn't realize was, was a spy. Uh, and not unlike, um, the current situation with the spy who was shacking up with a, with a third rate pundit, uh, you know, from a fourth rate think tank. It's like, Oh my God, that's literally a page out of our book. So, um, it's very, it's very weird. I mean, we invented fake news went back when it was still cool, you know? So, um, but yeah, so please buy that book and you'll be amazed. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's, I don't know, selling all my wares, uh, right there. So, um, yeah, please check it all out. The cheerfully subversive Dan Mervish. I appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thanks, Mike, and uh, and uh, appreciate everyone listening. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.